We're in the, we've made it to the last chapter in 1 Thessalonians. If you've been with us, you know that we've, we're going to be spending 14 Sundays looking through the book of Thessalonians, just uh, seeking what it is that, that Paul has to say, not just to the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago, but what he has to say to us. If you notice uh, my subtitle up here of the sermon series, I hadn't really talked about it yet, but it's uh, 1 Thessalonians, Life and Times. And uh, when I chose that subtitle, I didn't mean for it to sound like some sort of A&E biography, right? <laughs> you know, like the life and times of the Apostle Paul or the life and times of the, the church in Thessalonica. Uh, what, what I mean by that is the Christian life for all times. What does it mean to be a Christian, whether that be 2,000 years ago, or whether that be today? Or whether that be when Christ should return. How do we as believers in Christ function in this fallen world? Particularly as we await that return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when we will meet Him in the air and be like Him. Right? How do we live in the here and now? We have to remember that we live between two ages, right? I mean, Christ came, He was born, He lived, He died, and He was raised. And during His earthly ministry, He promised that He would come again, that He would return, and that He would take His people unto Himself. And we're still waiting for that day. He hasn't come back yet. So we're stuck here between these two times. The first age and the end times. And so how do we live this life in this fallen world? What do we do while we wait? How are we to live until Christ returns? Last week we began to focus specifically on Paul's teaching on the end times. And if you remember last week, I was was emphatic about Paul is not mentioning this so that we can focus on dates, so that we can try to figure out when Christ is coming. Last week, he was in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, he was addressing the issue in order to provide comfort for those who had lost loved ones. They'd lost brothers and sisters in Christ, and they had questions about what had happened. And he presents to them two theological truths in order to comfort them. He says, one, Christ will be raised, so that Christ is raised, and therefore it guarantees that we will be raised, so that even if they've died, they will be raised. And second, because Christ is coming back, we will all be reunited together with Him one day. Those two theological truths then should comfort us. And they should cause us to encourage one another with these words as we wait. So that we together, as we proclaim the truth of Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return, we might build one another up. We might help one another to persevere, to stand strong, to stand firm, even in the midst of a fallen world, even though death is surrounding us, because it's not the end. And now, Paul turns his attention to the issue of judgment. So he's dealt with death and bereavement in the last passage that we looked at. Today, we're looking at at how Christians are to live in light of of the day of the Lord, in light of Christ's return, in which all people will stand in judgment before God. And again, he's presenting pastoral concern. He's trying to shepherd them, to care for them, to assure them of their state before the Lord, and how they are to live as they wait how they are to get ready, how they are to prepare. Because Christ's resurrection and return is meant to give us hope. Death is not the end. And so if I wasn't sarcastic, I mean I mean, persuasive enough last week with regards to the end times and how we are to look at, at, at Paul's intention here that this is not an attempt to solve the, the apocalyptic puzzle, Paul has given me one more try, okay? I'll try not to to overdo it like I did last time. But uh, the key to living between the times is about getting ready. It's about being ready. Okay? Readiness 
doesn't come from determining the dates, the, the times and seasons, the day and the hour of the Lord. Instead, it comes from being alert. And that readiness, the reason we get ready, is because the Lord has saved us. And the intended result of our readiness is so that we might encourage and build one another up so that they might do the same. So that's where we're going. That, that's the nutshell of the sermon right there. I'm just going to be unpacking it the rest of the time. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-11. through 11. It is page 987 in your pew Bibles. Paul says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For the Lord has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. In verses 1 through 3, it says that there is a wrong way to get ready for the day of the Lord. Paul's saying here to the Thessalonians, now, about the times and seasons, about the day and the hour, that, that day of the Lord, the day in which Christ will return, I don't have any need to write to you because you're already fully aware that it'll come by surprise. It's going to come like a thief in the night. Now, what does he mean by time and seasons? And this is used in the Old Testament and the prophet Daniel to talk about God's establishment and dismantlement of kingdoms. I mean, we often think, when we think of times and seasons, we think of, you know, spring, summer, winter, fall. And so God has, has control over those things. God causes it to change time. God causes it to change season. But that's not what he's talking about here. The, Daniel's clear that, that it's God alone that changes the times and seasons, and then he immediately follows that up by talking about kingdoms and kings and rulers. In Acts chapter 1, before, right immediately before Christ's ascension into heaven, Jesus was asked by his followers when God would restore the kingdom of Israel. Okay, so we're dealing with kingdoms again, right? And he responded by saying, It is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So the two words come together refer to God's sovereign work to inaugurate a new plan of institution or a kingdom or to judge existing empires. Okay, It refers either to the establishment or the dethronement of kings. The day of the Lord. He mentions that in verse 2. In the Old Testament, this phrase is used over and over again for the day in which God comes to judge nations, including Israel. This is the time when God will pour out His wrath upon His foes. In the New Testament, this then narrows. It becomes clear that the day of the Lord is referring to the day of Christ's return. The day in which Jesus comes to establish His earthly reign and when we, as we learned last week, the dead will be raised, believers will be raptured, all will be reunited and stand before Him in judgment. So, those whom He saved, they will be reunited with, with Christ for all eternity. But those who remained enemies of God, they'll be condemned. So the day of the Lord is both a good thing and a bad thing, depending on who you are, right? Right? 
If you've believed and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the day of the Lord is a great thing. You long for it because you'll be reconciled, reunited with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if you've remained an enemy of God, if you've continued to rebel against Him, it's not going to be a pleasant day. It'll be a day of reconciliation for sure, but a day of judgment. Now we have to think about why the Thessalonians wanted to know. Why were they so interested in the day of the Lord, in the times and seasons? I mean, were they like us? Were they just kind of curious, just wanted to know, kind of figure out the Bible code kind of a thing? You know? No. Not at all. We have to remember that the first Thessal- the, the, the church in Thessalonica, they were suffering for their faith at the hands of persecutors. They wanted to know when their relief would come. They were wondering about their, their friends who had died. Their friends who believed in the Lord and Savior and were hoping for His return but have died. What's going to happen to them? They want to know about that. They want to know when God's name will be vindicated. When He will judge His foes. But ultimately, they just want to know when they can be with their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what they want. That's why they want to know when He's going to come back so that they can be with Him. It's not like us. You know, we, we don't have those the same desires. Like, I don't even think we have the same desire to be with Jesus, honestly. You know, we look at the end times and it's just a game for us. You know, we, we pump out books and we pump out movies over and over and over again just trying to, to decipher the date. Like, that's going to be some great thing. And we treat it like a game, like we were playing Sudoku or we were playing a crossword puzzle. I mean, it's really no different. We don't, we don't, sh- we don't struggle, suffer for our faith in the same way they do. Maybe we want reprieve from hardship and pain of this life because we live in a fallen world, because we made a mess of ourselves. But so often is the case, we, we, don't, we don't long for the day in the same way that they do. Our desire for the day of the Lord should ultimately be because we want to be with Jesus. That's what we want more than anything. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it's funny. You know, I talked about you, this deciphering clues into this Bible code as sort of being like a game. How we treat it like a game and we, we, we sort of make fun of it almost in the way that we pump out books and movies and stuff. I mean... I mean, you've seen Left Behind, right? I mean, that's pretty funny, right? I, it's, it's nothing like that. <laughs> and our desire to know the times and seasons can actually be irreverent, disobedient idleness. Have you ever thought about that? In our desire to know the exact time and nature of Christ's return, we are actually being disobedient. We are being irreverent. We are being idle. I mean, Jesus himself said that only the Father knows the day and the hour. He followed that up by saying that it's going to come like a thief in an hour when no one would expect it. These are coming out of Jesus' own words. And so to sit here and to try to discern what, what it is that, that, that only God knows is ultimate defiance. I mean, if Jesus just said, hey, only God knows the, the hour and you turn around and do it, you think you're honoring to Christ in that? Do you think you're going to figure out something that Christ didn't himself know? I mean, if the Son of God didn't know it, then why should we? Why should we be so concerned about it? Maybe some, I mean, some people actually argued like this. Well, you know, Jesus said that during his earthly ministry, and that was before he even ascended into heaven. But we received the book of Revelations after Jesus ascended. And I said that mockingly, and apparently Jim got it. You know, it's already always, <laughs> yeah, revelation, it's one revelation. You know, you always know the Bible scholar in the room when they're, when they're focused on the red letters about the end times from the book of Revelations. So, <laughs> I, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but Paul's, Paul's words to the Thessalonians are the same to us, 
All right. You do not have any need for anything to be written to you because you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. All right. You know, it's going to be like that. So why are you trying to discern the date? As far as I know, I, I, I have never heard of an instance in where a, a thief left a note. You know, where a burglar made sure to leave some clues to let you in on when he's going to arrive. Like you go out to your mailbox and you open it up and there's a little note in there. and You open this thing up and he says, you know, uh, dear friend, for your safety and mine, please be sure to be away on 30 days, has September, April, June and blank. The three plus five, the duck flies at midnight. Sincerely, your neighborhood bandit. Okay? If you would have done that, it wouldn't really work out in his favor, would it? I mean, thieves work on surprise, but it's not too hard to figure out from that note that on December, or I'm sorry, on November the 8th at 12 p.m. or 12 a.m., he's going to show up, right? It's not going to work out for him. No, it would work out for you. But that's not the way it's, it's meant to work. I mean, when, when it comes to the day of the Lord, we're not going to know. We're not going to know. I don't think, I think it'll surprise every single one of us. I don't think Hagee's ever going to be right. I certainly don't think Benny Hinn's ever going to be right. I mean, you name it. All these people that have pumped out date after date after date, they've been wrong. So let's not get too anxious about December 21st, 2012, right? I mean, the Aztecs didn't even know Jesus. Okay, so I don't know if they're going to be able to figure it out either. But the reality is throughout the centuries, every generation has believed that Jesus is going to return in their time, in their lifetime. Every decade, there has been a prediction that Christ would return in that decade. And what you have is a group of people buy into that and they go out wherever getting ready for this only to be discouraged and come back because it doesn't happen. You know, I, not that they're Christians, but I think the Watchtower Society for the Jehovah's Witness, they're actually on their 10th prediction for Jesus' return in 100 years. That's one every decade. See how that works out for them. But I hope you see that the real danger is... I mean, there's a real, real danger in seeking to determine the date of Christ's return. I mean, inevitably, it results in a false security that leads to destruction. All right? I mean, history has shown that the destruction that happens to the faith of those who have trusted in wrong predictions. I was just reading about this group of, of believers from Korea. And in October of 1992, I forget the exact date that they had 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 determined that Christ would return. They believed that on October, I think it was the 23rd or something like that, 1992, Christ was going to come back. And all these, these, uh, these Christians, these Korean Christians got really excited about it. They were so convinced that they actually went out and they sold all their possessions. They sold their house, gave away their clothes, sold their cars, everything, you name it. Sold everything they had and then they gave it away to the poor. They had nothing because they were so certain that Christ would come back in that moment. Well, that day came and that day went. And then most of them tried to return, but they couldn't return home. They had nothing. And it led to the despair of many. A few of them even committed suicide over the deal. I mean, that's huge. That's so destructive. Every decade, groups flock towards a date of Christ's imminent return, only to return home discouraged because the predictions were wrong. I mean, if we were meant to know, God would make it clear. But He didn't. Let's also think for a minute. What do you think would happen if you did know the day of Christ's return? Just think about this. If you knew the exact day of Christ's return, what would the day before look like for you? What about three weeks before? Or 
ten years before? Or what if you knew that Christ was not going to come for another hundred years? How would you live your life? What would it look like? Do you think you would live every life in eager anticipation, ready for that day? When you knew that you were going to die before it came? Or you knew that it was coming in in ten years? Maybe if you knew that it was coming tomorrow. Right? As you know, Phyllis and I, we've... We have three little kids, very young little kids. Their oldest is right there, Layden, and they often mistake themselves for tornadoes, right? And so at any given moment, in any given day, our house looks like a tornado. Three tornadoes ran through it, right? And so if we're going to have people over, we have to be really intentional about it, you know? So we, we invite people, and when we make plans with you to come over to our house, we also make plans to clean up the devastation from these tornadoes, Right? But if you, except for when Quinn comes over, right? Yeah, I mean, we've, we, I mean, people come over and it's messy. You know, we've kind of adopted this, uh, this phrase like, if you don't mind the mess, then we don't mind the company. You know, but you just got to realize that this is how it's going to be. Uh, it's just impossible to kind of go around with a vacuum cleaner after these kids all the time. But if you come a day early, or better yet, if you come unexpectedly, you are going to walk into the path of destruction from these tornadoes. I mean, this is the way it is. It's just going to be messy. You know, and if you knew the day or hour of Christ's return, honestly, I think you'd keep the mess in your lives until you had just enough time to get it cleaned up well enough to be approved. If you knew the hour that Christ was going to return, you would live up as much as you can just in comfort and ease and doing whatever, and I'm going to get my act straight right before he comes. Because I know the day and hour. That's not faithfulness. That's not living for Christ. Paul says in verse 3, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Whether these people are saying that Christ won't return yet, or whether they don't believe that Christ will ever return, these people are living under a false sense of peace and security. They go through their lives seeking pleasures and comforts from this world, unconcerned about being caught unaware. Paul says that Christ's coming will be like a thief. It's going to be sudden and unexpected. And like labor pains for a pregnant woman, it's going to be sudden and unavoidable. Unavoidable. Avoidable. Now, if you've ever experienced pregnancy and delivery, you know what Christ or what Paul is talking about here. Now, some a lot of you are single. You hope to have kids one day, so I kind of have to fill you in on this as well. But when you find out you're pregnant, you you start with like this first doctor's appointment, this first of many, 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 many doctor's appointments, right? And so you go in there and you're all excited, right? And and you go, and, and of course, they're asking lots of questions. They're taking height and weight. They're checking all these vitals. They usually do this ultrasound so they can kind of measure the baby and stuff. And if your doctor's kind of quacky, you know, you might do some weird things like hold a stick and spit on a rock while jumping up and down on one foot or something. I don't know. But anyway, with all this data that they collect, they then come over to their desk, and they sit down, and they open a drawer, and they pull out a little round piece of cardboard. And it's actually three independent pieces of cardboard. And based upon the data, they spin it around, you know, like a decoder ring, you know, to kind of figure out, you know what this thing is? This is the magic wheel of delivery. This tells you the exact date, according to that doctor, when you will deliver this child. Under no certain circumstances will it ever deviate from this date that this little cardboard circle gives you. Okay, it is locked in and they make plans all around it. It is not going to change. So if that will says that on September 28th, your child will be born and you need to have a C-section. September 29th is when they schedule the C-section. If you need to be induced, it's a week after that due date. Just bam. And they make plans around it. And that's it. It doesn't matter how much information you have. 
when we when we were pregnant with Gabe, Phyllis was charting, right? She she came in there with, with her stuff, like her big book bag, and kind of pulled all this stuff out. And there was like the rise of, of her temperature. There was the change of her mucus, which you don't want to know what that is. And and she even had charted. <laughs> she, she even charted the act of conception. Now, you know what I'm talking about there, right? So with, with all this information, it's clearly discernible, like, when the date will be, right? And her date was, was off of what the doctor's date was. But it didn't matter because the doctor had the magic wheel, and it was set. And so we were moving from that. We were not going to change from that date. didn't matter how wrong it was. So... There we were, you know, and, and Phyllis's date was much more accurate than the doctor's. That didn't really matter. Whatever. They will not move from it. They plan everything around it. But there's just one problem. That wheel, that little piece of cardboard, it's not magic. It's not. In fact, I have yet to meet somebody who went into the doctor's office and that wheel was right. You know, where there's like, Polly, really? All right, good deal. There's one for like a billion I know a billion people, and Polly's the only one. Actually, my wife was born on her due date. Stop. You're ruining the analogy. <laughs> the vast majority of people, that is wrong. I mean, like 99.9%. We have a couple of freaks in the room. I can't really help that. <laughs> but here's the thing. It's, it's almost always wrong. You can't depend upon it, Right? And if you were looking on that date for yourself, you would, get, you would make some pretty big mistakes. I mean, it's not like most, the, the average for pregnancies is 40 weeks, right? But it's not 40 weeks to that day. It could be 40 weeks and one day, or it could be 38 weeks and six days. I mean, who knows? There's not an exact deal. But if you make all your plans around that date and you procrastinate to the point, you're going to find one of two things happen. Either you're making an emergency trip to the hospital before that due date and you don't have your bags packed yet, or that day is going to come and it's going to go by and you are going to be miserable and livid because you're so uncomfortable that all you want to do is get this thing out of you, right? I mean, those are the two options that you're left with if that day is wrong. And even if the magic wheel of delivery happens to be right, in these two cases, see, I planned for this. You're not catching me by surprise. <laughs> it cannot adequately prepare you for the sudden, unavoidable experience of labor. Okay? Just because you have your bags packed and you plan on taking a trip to the hospital on the due date, it does not, experience, it does not prepare you for the experience of labor and delivery. Not the pain, not the, the exhaustion, not the emotional and sensory overload that you will experience in that moment. It cannot do that. That will cannot prepare you. That date is inconsequential in that moment that unavoidable moment of delivery, the only thing that's going to help you is because you've received coaching, you've studied, you've asked a lot of questions of other people who have gone through it before, you have somebody hold your hand who has been there, who is committed to helping you through that. So you find that that date means nothing in that moment, but what matters is everybody who is doing it together to help you, to prepare you, to get you ready for that day of arrival. But unlike pregnancy, where there's a little room for error, and things do tend to work out in your favor, even when the date is wrong, it's not so with regard to the return of Christ. If you are unprepared for the return of Jesus Christ, there's no do-over. There's no making it up. You don't have purgatory so you can go and absolve yourself of your sins. That's it. If you're mistaken, it's going to cost you. And Paul says it is sudden and inescapable destruction. These words are so serious that we we can't even really begin to unpack what this means, right? Right? Your worst experience of life cannot compare to what he means when he says sudden and inescapable destruction. 
I don't even imagine walking in to the fires and destruction of 9-11 before the final towers fell. Being a, being a, a, a firefighter, a police officer, would describe the hell that this is talking about. And we're not talking about annihilationism. When he says sudden and inescapable destruction, doesn't mean that you're just going to be destroyed and you cease to exist. We're talking about eternity under the wrath of God. A perpetual destruction of who you very, who, who, your, your very being, who you are. This is going to go on forever. So we don't take this lightly. This is not something that we should question or scoff at. And this is certainly not something that we should give people a false sense of peace and security about. Oh, you're saved. Oh, don't worry, the date's coming up this time. You've got time. This sudden destruction will be inescapable. And one of the ways that you can aid the unprepared on the road to hell is by looking to determine the date. By getting them convinced that your date, December 21st, 2012, is the right one. Because either they won't believe you and they'll scoff and they'll be unprepared, or that day will go by and they'll still be unprepared. You'll never be ready by determining the date. And you'll never help others to get ready by curiously playing this game of discerning the times and seasons, by seeking to decipher the day of the Lord. All right? That's the wrong way to get ready. The right way to get ready is found in verses 4 through 8, and that is to be alert. Again, let's look again at the text. Paul says, starting in verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of dark of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." If you have truly received Jesus Christ, the light of the world, then you are not in darkness. Darkness refers to this dominion of sin that is characteristic of the life of the unconverted. Those who have not received the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit are darkened in their understanding. They are slaves to sin whose hearts are hard towards the gospel, whose minds do not comprehend the, the greatness and the need of the salvation in Jesus Christ. Their eyes and ears are closed, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts that they would turn from their sin and be healed spiritually by Christ. Those who do not truly believe that the Son of God came and lived a perfect life and substituted Himself for sin by dying on the cross, and in three days rising again from the grave. These people are still in darkness. And so we, even here we can ask ourselves a couple of questions. Does your life look like that of the unconverted? When people look at you, do they see any difference in your life from that of an unbeliever? Are you still walking in darkness? But Paul tells them, these Thessalonians, these people who have proven themselves to be believers by their faith, hope, and love, that they are not walking in darkness for that day to surprise them. He says to them, you are children of light, children of the day. You've been saved by Christ, and so you belong to the day. You walk in the light. You focus your attention, your energies, your heart and soul on living for the glory of God as it's revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. You don't live to please yourself, but for Him who died for your sake and was raised. You aren't caught up in the things of this world. You're not a slave to sin. You are no longer live as if this is your world and you are God, but instead you realize that you have rebelled against God and have responded by turning away from your rebellion to follow after God. 
like a good soldier. You do not get caught up in civilian affairs because your aim is to please the one who has enlisted you. And Paul really picks up on this soldier imagery throughout this text. He's using it when he says that we should be awake and sober. We should be at the ready. An alert soldier who is standing watch. Poor soldiers fall asleep. Poor soldiers get drunk on the job. A good soldier is armed and ready, even when surrounded by darkness. We are not to walk in ignorance of the truth, to lose our focus on why we are here. We are not to become intoxicated with the world's wine, its pleasures, and its way of thinking. But instead, we are to be alert. We are to be sober. Or better yet, it's actually that we are to remain awake. That we are to remain sober. Let me ask you another question. Do you remember the joy and excitement that you experienced when you first came to Christ? Do you remember your eager desire to be with Jesus? Or did you ever experience that? Paul says, don't be lulled off into sleep by by the darkness of this world. Don't become intoxicated with its wine of indulgence and comfort and ease and entertainment and unbelief. Because you have been freed from it. You are no longer a slave to it. You are to keep awake. You are to remain sober. He says in verse 8 that we are to do this because... We belong to the day. He says, you are a new creation. You have been united with Christ and you belong to Him, not yourself and not to the world. You are to remain sober because you have already put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. This is a causal participle, alright? You have already put it on. It's not that... It's not that you need it in order to remain sober. To accept Christ is to become a soldier of Christ, to put on the armor of God and to remain at your post. You have enlisted, and enlisted men will be attacked. All right? They will be attacked. You don't add Christ to your life so you can be freed from the consequences of your sin so that you can live a life of ease and luxury and pleasure just floating below the radar and that in the event that Satan should happen to turn his aim towards you then you have that armor over there that you can put on when you really need to. That's not what it's talking about. To put on Christ is to be identified with Christ is to belong to Christ. It is to put on His armor because you know that you have entered the fight. You cannot stand passively with one foot in darkness and the other in light. You cannot go to bat for both teams. It doesn't work that way. Paul is saying here that you need to realize who you are. And then you need to be who you are. He says, you're a child of light. You're a child of the day. You have already put on the armor of faith, hope, and love. Now employ them. Put them to good use. You know, a soldier is not just a soldier when he's trying to figure out when it is that the general is going to come down from the sidelines to to enter the battlefield, and so he's going to put on his best effort then. A soldier is a soldier all the time. He's enlisted. He's to be faithful even when no one's watching. As though lives of thousands depended upon you standing at that post. Are you following orders? Whether your general is right next to you or whether he's a billion miles away. The reality is our general is always watching us. I mean, we believe in an omniscient Omnipresent God. A God who knows all things and a God is present everywhere. So it's never as though there's a a time for us to to fall asleep or to get drunk. We are to remain awake 
and sober at all times because we are serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are, as children of light, always to be at the ready. We're always standing our post, ready to engage in the fight at any moment. So we don't get ready by determining the date, but by being alert. But verses 9 through 10 give us the reason for our readiness. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or we are asleep, we might live with Him. He says, The reason... We get ready for Christ's return. The reason that we remain sober and alert and ready is because we were destined. We were appointed by God, not for wrath, but to receive salvation through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Paul has switched from focusing on what we are to do by not determining the date and, and by being alert and who we are as children of light to focusing on who God is and what He has done. Our identity, our nature, and our actions that come out of that identity are based upon the nature and action of God Himself. He says we are, we live because of who God is and because of what God has done. And Paul doesn't scoot around the issue here. I mean, he's already said in chapter 1, verse 4, that God has chosen you. And now he says that God has destined or appointed you for salvation. And because God has chosen and destined you for salvation, all who are truly believers in Christ will get ready. They will do it. He has no problem attributing salvation of believers from beginning and end to the sovereign purposes of God. You do not remain in darkness. You are not one who will be surprised by the suddenness of Christ's coming because God has destined you for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not subject to God's wrath because He appointed you to be a child of light, to be saved by Him. Jesus died for us so that we might live with Him. You could also say it this way. Christ came and lived the life that we cannot and gave it up as a substitute for our sin. He died our death for sin on the cross so that we might live His life. We exchange our sin for His righteousness. That's what happens in salvation. It's the great exchange. We trade our sin for His righteousness. And whether we are still alive when He returns, or whether we have died, we have this guarantee that if we have repented of our sin and we've truly believed in Him, we will live with Him. Because He lives... He has risen from the grave and His resurrection guarantees our own so that whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, we will live with Him. God's work of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis for our readiness. We realize that that in Him we have been given salvation from the just wrath of God. Against our sin. Against my sin. In Him, we need not fear then the judgment of God as those who walk in the darkness. We have received the light of Christ, so let us walk in it because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So our readiness is based upon God's work of salvation in us. And our readiness, according to verse 11, then has an intended result. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. God's intended result of our readiness is so that we might encourage and build up one another. 
Here Paul echoes what he's already said in chapter 4, verse 18, that our confidence in the work of Christ, our hope of his resurrection, our anticipation of his return is meant to spur us to speak the truth and love to one another, to encourage one another with these words, to remind one another of these great truths. Because of Christ's completed work, we can have hope in the face of death because Christ's resurrection guarantees our own. Christ's work of salvation has guaranteed that we've escaped the judgment of God for our sin. His wrath is no longer against us. It's been satisfied in Christ. His his anticipated return gives us hope in that my life is not always going to be only about pain and suffering and sin. That there is hope. That death is not the end that we will be reunited with our Lord and Savior, the one who saved us. So we fix our hope on the truth of His resurrection and return, and we stand at the ready, even though darkness surrounds us, because we are children of light, shining in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. And so God has designed the church that we might be vessels of this truth, Not that salvation comes through us, but we are empty vessels sharing the greatest treasure, the greatest hope that one could ever give. And we're meant to share that with one another, to encourage one another in it, so that as I am beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, I can can help you in, in your discouragement, in your despair, in your hardship, because you see, you see that God is at work in me. And I am saying that to you. And it's the same if we flip the tables. If I am discouraged or in despair or dealing with hardship or or death or grief or you name it, I can look at you and you can speak the truth of the gospel into my life. You can be example of the glory of God in the face of Christ to me. And we're changed by it. We build one another up with it with the truth, so that when one slips, the others will help him to stand. When one is weary, the others will help him to stay awake. When one is weak, the others will help him to carry his burden. And when one is idle, the others will come around him and admonish him with the truth, always being patient. We are to be a community of one anothering, always seeking the glory of God and the good of others as we proclaim the truth of the gospel to one another in every aspect of life. Friends, all our sins, all our shortcomings are rooted in misbelief. We believe lies. We believe the world. You name it. All our sin, all our misgivings, all our shortcomings are are rooted in misbelief. But the one cure for all misbelief is the good news of Jesus Christ. And all we need to do is know it and apply it gently to one another in love. And we can help one another stand to persevere. So let's do this. Paul says, just as you are doing it, Keep doing it more and more and more. The Christian life is about living and growing in community, about living and growing in our understanding and living out the gospel. And we have to do this together. It's not about me and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. That's the way it was intended. So if you're sitting here and you're wondering why this doesn't describe you, then it's probably because you've yet to truly open yourself up to be part of the community of faith. If you're sitting here and you're terrified by the idea of the judgment of God, that you are fearing Christ's return, it's probably that because you haven't opened yourself up fully to being a part of the body of Christ. God has intended us to encourage one another, to help one another persevere. It's like I said a while back, that that God had intended us to increase and abound in love for one another. 
that we are to do to to live and to please God more and more and more and more. And as we do this together as a body, the result of that is that God establishes our hearts in blameless and holiness. So if you want blamelessness and holiness, it happens as you're part of the community of faith. As you've opened yourself up to one another speaking the truth of the gospel into each other's lives. We need one another to fight the good fight of faith. We can't do it apart from one another. So just like last week, in this passage we see that Paul's focus is on the end times is not so that we can determine the times and seasons so that we can figure out the day of the Lord, the day when Christ will return. But instead, he's addressing pastoral issues. He wants us to have hope in the midst of grief that's based on the truth of the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ. Here, he wants to give us hope that we have been freed from the judgment of God because of God's work of salvation in us. And so let us encourage one another with these words. Rather than fear His judgment, let us hope. Because hope is what we've been given in Jesus Christ. Jeff Perswell says it like this. Here's how we can sum up the thrust and import of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things, right? Study of end times. Eschatology assures us that God's purposes will prevail and it motivates us to live faithfully until those purposes are fulfilled. It changes the way we live. We live in light of those purposes and in light of the destination to which all things are heading. So that purpose is to be reconciled with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to be with Him forever. To live in the meantime as those who have been freed from sin and the just wrath of God to eagerly await the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That destination that He speaks of is to dwell in the presence of God who forgave us of our rebellion through the life, death, and resurrection of our returning Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let's get ready for it. Not by determining the date, but by persevering together to be alert, to be on guard. Because God has indeed saved all who believe in Jesus Christ. He's done it. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father God, we we thank you for the truth that is revealed to us in your word. That there is great hope. There is reason to anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. Not so that we can argue and, and squabble over the exact date, but so that we can prepare ourselves to being reunited with our great and glorious King who we once spurned. God, I pray that you would open our our minds and our hearts to the greatness of the salvation of Jesus Christ and that we would see our ultimate need for it. And as a result, we might be changed. God, help us to turn from sin, to follow after Christ. Help us not be deceived by this temptation to believe that this life is all there is and that death is the end of all things, because it's not. You have given us great hope and great promise in the resurrection and return of your Son, Jesus Christ. So may we long for it. God, help us as a church to encourage one another with these words. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.